0: I worship at Metro because of the power of God. I think we have to be authentic and come and give gratitude to him. We have to give a thanksgiving to him. And when you come with your heart, God accept the uh, gratitude that you gave him. And I worship because of that, because God is awesome, is everlasting, is the one that always deserves all the honor and glory, and we give him all the adoration. This. The Metropolitan United Methodist Church podcast Who can describe this generation? Pray with me. And now Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You who art our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When I read that question, who can describe this generation in our scripture lesson this morning, and then asked it to myself, I immediately went to my generation. I'm a millennial, so called Generation Y er, born sometime between the early 80s and the mid 90s. I was intentionally not really thinking of other generations, if I'm being honest. They say millennials are quite selfish and self-centered, it turns out. I think that has something to do with all of the participation trophies we were awarded by the boomers and the Gen Xers. But I remember coming home from Peace Corps several years ago and going out to dinner with my parents, who had each just gotten an iPhone. They were terrified that they would do something to that iPhone that they would not be able to undo, and having spent all of that money would render it totally useless. They laughed when I told them that there was nothing that they, baby boomers, could do that I, a millennial, couldn't figure out how to undo. (laughs) This early adopter of technology, identity, of millennials, then has become sort of a definitional element of who my generation is. That is, if you ask us. If you ask others, you might hear that we need a lot of guidance and a lot of explanation, a lot of extra time. A former boss told me, you millennials want there to be clear rules and expectations. You just don't want them to always apply to you. Now, I've always dwelt on that because it was actually the first time someone really said something to me that was true that I didn't yet know about myself. Now, I get nervous dwelling on this too much, though, because whether positive or negative... So much of who we are, who I am, of who you are, is contextually bound in the time and the place and the events where we grew up and came of age. There's a reason that the folks we now call the greatest generation had such a selfless, community-driven outlook, at least by U.S. standards, growing up and coming of age as they did in the Depression and in World War II. History then becomes instructive as we seek to understand and describe ourselves and our generations. But actually, I think there's some utility in using the singular, generation. Because while we may be different in some small ways between cohorts, in the larger scale over millennia, we're really a unique generation compared with the leagues and leagues of humans over history who could not fathom all the things that can be accomplished with this little device, it is as a single historical generation, a single class of people here and now today, that we have to ask and answer the question, who can describe this generation? And as Christians asking and answering this question, we have to provide a compelling vision of a future with hope that offers something sacred and meaningful to the entirety of creation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the phrase, pure American evangelism. My church history professor, a theologian at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, Mark Teasdale, coined it to describe the period of rapid Christian evangelism that swept America in the mid-1800s. Pure American evangelism. It captures a sort of generation of Christians many of whom were Methodists whose identity was bound up in the premise that God had uniquely blessed them as middle-class Americans. Now, at this time in human history, the U.S. was rapidly modernizing in pace with the Industrial Revolution, resulting in the emergence of the first widespread middle class in human history. Folks were saving money. They had access to transportation, an amazing rail network spanned the country. They were well educated. They were putting money into their savings account. They were starting to experience self sufficiency. This notion of being a self-made man because you had to be a man. This idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is the time in American history where these concepts came alive. Pure American evangelism suggested that it was the responsibility of American Christians to be responsible. To look out for themselves first. To achieve success first. And then later evangelize, and uplift anyone and everyone who didn't look like them, who wasn't quite so lucky to have that blessing of that middle-class lifestyle. Friends, i got to tell you, the Methodist church was a prime purveyor of this evangelistic zeal. But if they were blessed to be who they were, someone's got to ask the question, why did someone else have to be cursed? Because all of that economic and industrial development didn't come for free. We know the institution of slavery remains, then, was, and is still now the single most important driver of economic development in the 19th century, without which there would have been no economy and no middle class for this pure American evangelistic generation. They were exclusively white, Protestant, native-born men whose blessing was the result of the injustices, inequities, and inequalities that they created, that they nurtured, and that they sustained. What's more, this blessed generation of pure American evangelists looked to transform the world around them, to transform the world so that it, too, could share in their blessing. They sought to transform the world in their own image, making of it an idol that in reality was impossible to attain for anyone who hadn't been born just like them. Who can describe this generation? Now, they say history repeats itself, and we know this is true, not only in the doing, but also in the not doing, not in the learning, but in the not learning. In the case of the Christian church, there's so much we refuse to learn from the past, readily available and spelled out in Scripture and able to be applied to our lives. Vestiges of the pure American evangelism generation remain with us today, Whenever we hear of people talking about those those good old days, misremembering some simpler time and place, something about making America great again, but not addressing all of the folks on whose backs that American idol was built. No, no, history is instructive, and yet we refuse to heed its lesson. The text from Acts this morning, in fact, provides us with a lesson in belonging to God. It provides us a lesson in how we orient ourselves and our work and our means, whether for ourselves or for someone else. Because we are enough or because God is enough. This morning's lesson from Acts is really a look into the early church's struggle to remove its own idols in the way it made disciples and shared the gospel. It should have been a lesson in the 1800s. It can be a lesson in the 2010s. The story in Acts is presented in a literary pattern that would have been familiar to the audience when Luke wrote it 2,000 years ago. The structure is called a chiasmus. It's a literary or rhetorical technique of starting something and then restating it in reverse order to make a point, a central point. You've heard of the phrase maybe quoted, uh, attributed to Cicero, one should eat to live, not live to eat. That's a chiasmus. We understand Cicero's point to mean that we should live simply and not out of an end of personal gratification. The chiasmus was an effective storytelling tool because it made the audience have to listen real carefully so they could identify what that central point to the story was. Well, in this passage, the narrative begins with Philip's following the Holy Spirit's leading, whereupon he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch who we are told is returning home after having made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. This should be as striking to us now as it would have been to the original hearers because of the two words, Ethiopian and eunuch. What is an Ethiopian doing in Jerusalem? This is a, a, a man who is, although a Jewish convert... An outsider in every sense of the word, from the shade of his skin, to the language he spoke, to the culture which defined his state of dress. No matter his conversion, he was not a member of the tribe. As a eunuch, his sexuality had been robbed from him as a means of ownership and control, and this meant he was relegated to an even lower rung of society. All of this is to say, at a time when the early church was wrestling with the various and multiple identities it would take on, it would be easy to suggest that this man did not fit the bill. And yet here he is, and as the chiasmus builds, we learn that he was incredibly devout, having just made a pilgrimage over a, de- a vast difference, uh, a distance, thousands of miles by horse-drawn chariot. He's presented as having been worshiping and reading scripture. So when Philip comes upon him and asks if he understood the words of the prophet Isaiah that he was reading, his reaction is one of humility. Hear the words again that he was reading in Verse 33, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life as taken away from the earth? Despite his own status on the fringes of society, despite this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch's own humiliation as justice in his own life had been taken away from him, this man responds in grace and invites Philip Empowered by the Spirit to work. The eunuch then asks Philip a question, and this, the chiasmus tells us, is the central lesson of the story. Luke places this person, this person who is on the margins of society, in the center of the narrative. And he asks in verse 34 About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else? When we read this story, we interpret it to be about kingdom building. And we interpret it about drawing the circle wide and welcoming in the outsider. And praising and honoring devotion and worship and prayer. And and friends, those are all good, good things. But that's not how this story was constructed. The central part of this story and the lesson for us is not a sentence. It's a question about whom... About himself or about someone else? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. About whom? Well, we know who it's about. The chiasmus is resolved when Philip tells him the good news of Jesus Christ. We expected this. The audience expected this. Everyone knows who hears this story exactly who the answer is, who the eunuch's question was directed to. About whom? Jesus. That's who. On the surface, it's obvious. So there's got to be something deeper here. There's got to be something more about whom. Friends, I contend in asking about whom the eunuch is giving us a gift. It's a gift of perspective and orientation. It must confront us, it must challenge us, and this question must guide us in our effort to be Christ for the world. The about whom wasn't about the subject of the story, the humiliation in the silent lamb. The about whom was about the recipient of this story. That person on whose behalf the humiliation was enacted, on whose behalf that lamb went silently to be murdered, on whose behalf, and to whose gain and glory. About whom? About himself? Myself? Yourself? Or someone else? The story in Isaiah, the vulnerability of the sheep, the threat and permanence of the impending slaughter, the silence and hopelessness of fear, the humiliation, the injustice, about whom, on whose behalf, for whom, just for you, just for me. Or could it possibly be for someone else, too? Could it have been for the eunuch? Could it be for the person on the margins? Could it be for the folks who aren't defined by this generation, for whom this generation has been more harm than help? Friends, the church today is in a tough place. We've made of ourselves a generation and have been making a Christian generation over a hundred years, over a thousand years. We have constructed temples and rules and structures. We have made an idol of ourselves. Time and again, the church confounds itself and rejects its own principles because it, because we, have become so focused on earning and meriting our own salvation ourselves. Who can describe this generation? This generation capable of removing the embodied life of God from the earth, friends, this generation is as much us today today, As it was them then, the generation that was so afraid of what Christ preached, afraid and challenged by the call to live simply so that others could simply live, that they crucified him. This generation was not just the Sanhedrin plotting plotting to get rid of that rabble-rouser Jesus. This generation was not just the Jews. The Jews who chose Barnabas instead of Jesus when presented the offer. This generation was not just the American Methodists of the 1800s, so self-congratulating their slavery-produced economic gain that they made of themselves idols. No, no, no. This, this generation is still happening. This generation still refuses to turn the other cheek, still refuses to live in hope instead of fear. This generation is still consumed with law and order and rules that put people in boxes and keep some boxes nice and and safe and other boxes out behind a wall because of where they're from and how they look and how they speak and who they love. And, and, and... This generation has a million excuses and a million distractions. This generation has one law that it was given and it refuses to obey it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor accordingly. Who can describe this generation? We are the ones, we are the only ones who can describe this generation and offer it a language of love and reconciliation. We are the only ones who our generation is looking toward for acceptance and meaning and wholeness, at least in a place where they can actually find it. Our generation is desperate for authenticity and relationship and community, even as it substitutes these things for those cheap knockoffs and self-centered ambition and vanity that we know, we know produce, produce nothing of value. Friends, what Philip told the eunuch in his chariot is what I'm telling you now. The new way of being in relationship with God is contingent on one law. And this law is not about behavior or actions or identity or quantifying requirements. This law is about orientation. It is about confronting our idols wherever and why ever they may be and stopping the noise to make the one main thing the one main thing. Love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your heart and with all your mind and love your neighbor accordingly. Metropolitan Church, do justice. Love mercy. Turn out those pocketbooks and let's get that children's camp going this summer. Do all the good you can by all the means you can in as many places as you can for as long as you can. But do all of this humbly with God. Do all of this out of your ever abundant and growing love for God. And do it for no other reason than that. Friends, grace is free. But as his history continues to show us, it ain't cheap. Metropolitan church can be a generation of believers whose love for God overpowers the darkness of poverty, brokenness, exclusion, racism, classism, homophobia, every other phobia, every other evil that's out there, not out of our power, not out of our works, not out of the idols that we have constructed, but because of God, but because of who God is, but because of the love that God first gave to us. By acknowledging and surfacing the idols that we've constructed in both our individual lives and, yes, here as a church, here even as Metropolitan United Methodist Church, we can begin the devastating and deeply unsettling work of knocking our idols down. Because it is only then that we will be able to truly love God with our whole hearts, and only then will the love we share with our neighbor be authentic and truly reflect the love God has for us. Who can describe this generation? Who will describe this generation? Pray with me. God, your word gives us a challenge, Lord, and as disciples in your church, we ask for your strength. Lord, if you have moved the hearts of us today, Clarify for us now and in the hours and days ahead how, Lord, we are to identify our idols, how we are to work at overcoming them, and how we are to more perfectly orient ourselves toward you and toward your love. For we know, Lord, that you and your love are never failing, are ever satisfying, and will always be there. Strengthen us for the journey, God. Probe our hearts and help us to live into Christian discipleship more faithfully. These things we lift up in Jesus' strong name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Metro UMC podcast. Please join us for worship at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings or at 5 o'clock on Tuesdays for 5 o'clock Rush. You can find more information at metroumc.org or on Facebook under Metropolitan United Methodist Church. Metropolitan United Methodist Church is a biblically-based, multicultural, diverse, Christ-centered congregation where everyone is welcome. Intro and outro music by the Marvin Jones Trio, and their recording, I Remember You.